All right, Isaiah chapter 9, we last time together made our way to the end of verse 7, looking, of course, at that beautiful prophecy there regarding the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come into chapter 9, verse 8, and move into chapter 10 as well, it seems in this next section we really have God by His Spirit through Isaiah the prophet, strongly condemning the pride that existed in the hearts of those who were living in rebellion to his will. Uh, And that were different categories, both the nation of Israel themselves, and then ultimately we'll see God pronounce his woe or his judgment against the nation of Assyria as well. He starts here with the sin of the northern kingdom of Israel. Again, remember at this time we're looking at a time when there's the divided nation, you have the ten tribes in the north referred to as Israel, and then, of course, the southern two tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, referred to as Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, and at this time, God seems to now turn his message to the northern tribe of Israel regarding what their rebellion was bringing against them. We know the northern kingdom fell first and that they would be severely devoured by the cruelty of the Assyrian Empire. They would ultimately be conquered and then taken captive to Assyria as prisoners in 722 BC. But yet in their foolish blindness, and that is what pride tends to do to the human heart, you know, one of the most insidious things about pride is often it's extremely unrecognizable. That when we are walking in pride or someone is overcome by pride, they don't even recognize how arrogant and proud their heart has become. And it has this very strong blinding effect upon the person who's under the control of pride. And in their foolish blindness, they thought that they would escape the consequences of their sin, of their idolatry, of their rebellion against God and his will, and that they were going to be just fine. And God here, in a sense, is trying to drive home to them how greatly mistaken they were and how the discipline and the judgment of the Lord was on the horizon, was coming strongly against them for their pride and for their rebellion. If you look at me in verse 8, as we pick up here, Isaiah carrying on says, The Lord sent a word against Jacob, and it has fallen on Israel. So again, we seem to be clearly at this time, not referencing Judah, but the northern tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel. And this is the word that the Lord was speaking to them. Verse 9, and all the people will know Ephraim, which was the largest tribe in the northern part of Israel, so oftentimes the north was referred to as Ephraim. The terms were used synonymous. Often when you read Ephraim, and the idea is is Israel, the northern area, and the inhabitants of Samaria, which we know was the capital of the northern kingdom, who say, now notice verse 9, he zeroes in on the problem, who say, in pride and arrogance, of heart. I have that underlined there. Notice that's the condition. That's the problem here. The way that they're speaking, the way that they're thinking, it's stemming from this problematic condition of the pride and the arrogance of heart within them. And they were saying, verse 10, the bricks have fallen down. In other words, things are crumbling and falling apart. They could tell that. It was very evident to them that the walls were caving in, 
that the house was collapsing, that things were falling apart. They say, even in their own pride and arrogance, well, the bricks are falling down, absolutely, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The idea is better stones, more attractive stones, things that are new and novel and, and fancier than these old bricks anyway. We're done with the bricks. We've got new ideas, better ideas, greater visions and revelations. We'll just rebuild, they say, but with hewn stones carved out, beautiful stones, And yes, they say, verse 10, the sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with big, strong cedars. That's the problem. These old sycamores, they've served their time. It's time to get rid of them. Who cares if they're being cut down? We're going to replace them, and we're going to rebuild with better things, with nice, big, beautiful cedars. So notice, what God is indicating here as he's describing the condition of the pride and arrogance of their heart is rather than the northern kingdom acknowledging their sin and the problem that their sin and their pride was causing and bringing upon them, which was that things were collapsing, judgment was setting in, and the hand of the Lord was now against them, not with them, and things were crumbling, the bricks were falling, the trees were you know, being toppled over in a sense metaphorically, but rather than them taking responsibility for their sin and wrongdoing and repenting of it and taking ownership of it, instead, they would just ignore the consequence of the evident struggles and problems around them, and they would just do things to try and fix the situation. They would just cover it up by saying, hey, Yes, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, so we've caused things to fall apart. I mean, yeah, we've caused the house to collapse, and yeah, we certainly, I mean, yeah, we realize, but we're going to just rebuild with our own works. We've got plenty of money, and we've got resources, and we will just rebuild, and we will just replace, and we'll do an even better job. We'll get rid of the old bricks and those old ugly sycamore trees, and we will rebuild with nice, new, cool, hewn bricks or, or, you know, or better stones that are more fancy, that are more novel, that are more updated, and we'll just replace all the old, worthless stuff with bigger and better trees. We'll find cedar trees, and we'll build back even better the ideas. In other words, kind of, who cares if we're under the judgment of God? Who cares if we've ruined things Uh, we don't want to acknowledge that. We're just going to build back better. We'll just dismiss it and act like it didn't happen, and we'll just build back better. And they plan to just kind of disregard the evidence of the judgment of God and all the damage and repercussions and that they were under God's disapproval and just arrogantly strive forward like nothing ever happened and just kind of dismiss all the consequences and the bad realities that were going on and just kind of play it as, hey, everything's fine, let's just ignore what's happening, we'll just rebuild and replace, and we'll move forward. And again, this is kind of a a sad and a tragic thing here, and again, this was part of the problem of what was going on in the nation at the time, is they still had some resources, they still had some ideas, they still had some energies, and they hadn't exhausted those things yet, so rather than just take ownership and acknowledge the error of their ways and repent before the Lord, Instead, they're just going to keep throwing after it money and ideas and energy and say, we'll just rebuild and replace and act like, no, 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 nothing's going on, and just kind of move forward. And again, this would lead to the demise of the people and the downfall of the northern kingdom because they weren't acknowledging 
their errors and the things that were indicating their pride and their arrogance. They were just going to try and dismiss it and plow forward. Verse 11, notice God says, Therefore, the Lord, because of this, seeing their heart and their attitude and what they were saying, therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of Rezin. Remember, that was the, the king of the other nation that was coming against them. He will set up the adversaries of Rezin and spur his enemies onward. In other words, God would spur the enemies that were already coming against them to just increase their intensity and their efforts. Verse 12, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind. So God said, I'm going to bring the Syrians before you and against you, and then I'm going to you know, kind of tithe it up like bookends, and then I'm going to bring the Philistines on the back end, and they shall, God says, devour Israel as with an open mouth. So God here describes how he would ultimately continue to work in opposition to them despite what they were doing, and God would keep resisting their efforts. And they might try and rebuild, and they might try and replace, and they might try and ignore and reject the reality of what was going on, of their disobedience and their pride and arrogance and the bad consequences of bringing. And, and God says, I can last a lot longer than you can. And I have got way more resources and way more at my disposal. And so God, just in a sense, the idea, he, he, just, he says, I'm just going to turn the heat up more. I'll just bring more enemies against you. I'll make you become more vulnerable. I'll intensify the pressure because what's God looking for? God's looking for brokenness. God's looking for genuine repentance and acknowledgement and turning away from the error of their ways. Again, in the New Testament, what does the Bible tell us both in James and 1 Peter? The Bible tells us that God opposes or resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So even as God's describing here how because of their proud and arrogant hearts and they were resisting and refusing to repent and acknowledge their wrongdoing, God says, that, then I'm going to work in resistance to you. I'm just going to keep opposing you continuously. And again, that's such an important spiritual lesson, whether it's for a nation, for a group of people, and even for our lives individually, when our heart is in a proud condition, it causes the Lord not just to, in a sense, help and bless any longer. It's not just that he retracts his blessing. The Bible tells us he actually puts forth his hand in opposition and resistance. And here he's describing that as he would raise up their enemies and spur on their enemies to come against them in a more intense way and that he would actually work in opposition to them. And boy, I don't know about you. Not only do I want God's help in my life, I certainly don't want God's hindrance in my life. <laughs> I never want to be working in a way where God's putting his hand on my forehead and saying, you can burn a dust cloud as long as you want, son, but my arm is a lot stronger than those little legs and all the energy that you got. Uh, and again, what a sad thing to see what was going on here. And you know, what are all the parallels we look at and recognize when we see Israel and some of the tremendous parallels of you know, some of the things and the ways of where we're at in our own nation and our country and the ways that we're behaving and thinking that somehow we're going to outsmart God, we're going to oust God, we're going to do our own thing, and thinking, you know, I can't help but to fear sometimes that as Americans that this is the same idea, you know, well, we just, well, we have affluence and money and power and thinking that somehow we're going to just keep throwing all of our wonderful, you know, American resources at things and think eventually that we're not going to have to answer 
for the proud and the arrogant, rebellious ways that we've conducted ourselves as a nation. Eventually, it will all wear out. Uh, and God has no problem controlling all things, you know, raising up kings, making us vulnerable to enemies. At any given time, God can always overrule. And here he's speaking how this would happen to the northern kingdom. Now, notice the end of verse 12, this refrain. He says, and for all this, in other words, even though all those things would still come to pass to try and break them, for all this, his anger, his displeasure is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Now, that's the first of four times from here all the way through chapter 10, verse 4, that we will see this repeated refrain, right? And we've talked about before, whenever God repeats something in the word of God, we should always take note of that because it's not like a God of all knowledge is going, I just can't think of something else to say let me just say the same thing again. When God says something more than once repetitiously in the word of God, it's a pretty clear indication he's really trying to emphasize something or drive a point home. And so in this section, as he's pronouncing this warning to Israel, four times he makes this refrain, yet for all this, in other words, even though I've already done all these things to try and indicate my anger and disapproval and displeasure, it says, his anger is still not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Now, understand, that's not describing that God's hand is stretched out in mercy. I, if God's hand stretched out in mercy, that's a good thing. The idea here is his hand is stretched out in opposition and in judgment. And this is what he's describing here. In essence, what's being conveyed is God's proclaiming they still needed, unfortunately, more of the strong, resistant hand of the Lord because they weren't broken yet. And he's saying God's hand, even after all of that, God's saying my hand is still stretched out because you're still not saying uncle yet. You're still not willing to be broken yet and to repent yet. And so his hand continues to be stretched out here because they will not repent up to this point. Look what he goes on to say, verse 13. For the people, notice, do not turn to him. The idea is turn to him in repentance. For the people do not turn to him, to God, who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. In other words, they still won't turn back to God. They still won't seek the Lord and acknowledge, Lord, things are falling apart. Clearly, something's wrong. We, Lord, we've made a mess. We've done things wrong. They're not seeking the Lord for his help and turning to him. Verse 14, because they're pursuing in their kind of stubborn rebellion. Therefore, verse 14, the Lord will cut off the head and the tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush in one day. Notice God indicates how quickly he can bring an end to something. God says in one day, I can shut everything down in one day. You know, there are times we look throughout the word of God and we see occasions where, where God is able in one day to bring a complete turn of events when God gets rid of the Assyrian Empire, he's going to speak to them uh, shortly afterwards. Literally, the Assyrian Empire looked like that they were going to crush and overcome the southern kingdom of Judah as well. And in one day, God eradicated the majority of their forces and sent them back home with a broken back. And God has no problem when he exercises his strength. And God says, I'm going to, I'm going to deal severely with the northern kingdom in one day, he goes on to describe, verse 15, for the elder and the honorable 
He is the head. So now he's talking about the problem where it symptomatically stemmed from, and it stemmed from the leadership. He says, the elder and the honorable, he is the head, the prophet, verse 15, who teaches lies, he is the tail. So notice, again, what is a prophet in the word of God in its healthy and truest sense? A prophet is someone who speaks forth a word from the Lord. A prophet is someone like Isaiah, who God gives a message, a word, and they, in a sense, become God's uh, microphone, they become God's cell phone, they become God's pencil, however you want to look at it, that God's instrument to speak forth a word that God once spoke and a message. But notice that the word of God is very clear that not everyone who calls themselves a prophet or thinks themselves a prophet is a real or a true prophet. The Bible is very clear both in Old Testament and New Testament that there are both false prophets and false teachers. And that's why the Bible tells us that even when someone says the Lord has given them a word, again, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, as it describes the manifestation and how the Holy Spirit operates and his gifts and the different ways he functions, he describes there how that if someone speaks forth a prophetic word, a word from the Lord, it says that after that one speaks, let others judge, that is discern. In other words, okay, I know you said that's from the Lord, but just because you said it's from the Lord and you said it in a very sensational, spiritual-sounding way doesn't automatically mean that we have to accept that that's from the Lord. Does that word, does that idea, does that mindset, or does that align with the word of God, first of all? Because God's not schizophrenic, nor is he bipolar. And the same Holy Spirit who inspired and wrote the word of God is the same Holy Spirit who ministers through the people of God through a prophetic word or a gift of exhortation or through the teaching of the word of God or, or all the different ways, a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom. So the one first foremost thing we want to do to be able to test the spirits to see whether they be of God and not of a human spirit, which can happen sometimes, or of a unclean or even demonic spirit is to say, well, does that align with the word of God? Because the spirit of God who wrote the word of God is never going to say something that violates any principle or truth in the word of God. And so here, Isaiah is able to say one of the problems in the northern kingdom was both the civil leadership, but it also sadly had become very sick in regards to their spiritual leadership, because notice he says, verse 15, the prophet who teaches lies. What the prophets were saying were not leading people into relationship with God, and we see this in Jeremiah, in you know, other places as well, where the Lord very strongly denounces, stop saying, thus saith the Lord. You, you, that's not from me. And they were just using, in a sense, the label of the Lord or the name of the Lord to convince people of their own lies or their own ideas. And he says, the prophet who teaches lies for, verse 16, the leaders of this people cause them to err. So the prophets were teaching lies to the people spiritually. The leaders were causing people to err in what they were doing, the civil leaders, morally and in other ways they, they were misguiding the people the leaders were causing those under their leadership to err and again such a tragedy because leaders have influence leaders have authority and when they act in a way that is unhealthy 
they cause people to err off track because people follow leaders. And sadly, sometimes people emotionally follow leaders blindly. And, and, and the people were, were being led to err. And sometimes people, again, whether it's in civil government, you know, sometimes people become just so, you know, uh, if you would, uh, you know, extreme in, you know, party line commitments politically and so forth, that if that person is from their party, it doesn't matter what they're saying or what their policies are or whatever, they just, they will just follow that leader to the ends of the earth. Well, what if that leader's going off track? And so he says here, the leaders in the nation were causing the people to err and those, verse 16, look what he goes on to say, those who are led by them are being what? Destroyed. So the leaders were causing people to err in their behaviors and in their actions and the direction they were going. They were leading people in ways that the people were now erring, causing them to err, and they were guilty of doing such as leaders. And those that were allowing themselves to be led astray ultimately we're like sheep headed to the slaughter, he said. The people are being led in a way where they're going to be destroyed. Verse 17, God says, therefore, that is in light of this, the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For everyone, God says, there's a universal problem among all the nation. Everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks Folly. So notice, when leaders become corrupt and when teachers become corrupt, unfortunately, those who are under that teaching and under that leadership tragically tend to become corrupt along with them. Because if you're subscribing to unhealthy leadership and you are following and adhering to unhealthy teaching and direction, you're going to begin to have the same problems, he says. Ultimately, everyone became a hypocrite an evildoer, and their mouths were speaking folly as well. So despite the indicators of the Lord's displeasure, the people remained corrupt in their behavior, and the Lord was going to bring about a severe removal of the northern kingdom as judgment because of these things and their persistence. There's our statement again, see at the end of verse 17, for all this, his anger is not turned away but his hand is stretched out still. So again, God's hand is still extended towards them, trying to break them, trying to bring about their repentance that they would turn from their wrongdoing. Verse 18, for wickedness burns as the fire, it shall devour as the briars and the thorns and kindle in the thickets of the forest and they shall mount up like rising smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people shall become as fuel for the fire, and no man shall spare his brother. So the prophet begins to speak, in a sense, metaphorically of how the fiery judgment of the Lord was coming, and he pictures it there really kind of like a, a fast-consuming forest fire. Right, where just the fire just begins to quickly take over the land and everything begins to get burned up and devoured. And if you're in the path of that fire, there's no way you're going to avert it. You're not going to be able to escape it. And this is the idea here of the wrath of the Lord and his anger as it intensified and grew. The Bible says our God is a consuming fire and he begins to judge. His judgment will begin to burn like a forest fire. And he says, and there's no way of averting it the effort would be to no avail once the fire of God's judgment began to come against them as a people. 
Verse 20, and he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. Now, here the picture is, is they're kind of now, they're in panic mode. They're scrambling, trying to do what they can, snatching something over here, but it won't satisfy, still leaving them hungry and empty. And then he shall devour on the left hand and still not be satisfied. And then ultimately, notice verse 20, every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm, which is basically a, in a sense, metaphorical description of cannibalism, beginning to devour their own flesh and beginning to, in a sense, resort to things that were very vile. I mean, trying to grab this to fix the problem, trying to take, well, maybe this will work and that will satisfy. And ultimately, as things aren't working out, people become more cruel, more barbaric. They begin to resort to lower lows and greater depths of vile actions and activities. And you know, boy, that is such a a fitting description, whether it's a nation in moral decline, whether it's a group of people for some reason in moral decline, whether it's a person in moral decline, that's what happens. It, It just becomes like a downward spiral. And it starts with this, and then, and then it just intensifies and intensifies, and you start grabbing for this and grabbing for that, and now this isn't working anymore, and that's not working for, and then all of a sudden, the next thing you know, I mean, if somebody finds themselves in a place where God here describes cannibalistic behavior, devouring their own relatives, eating their own flesh from their own bodies, and no doubt... You have to wonder, you know, people looking in on that or the people themselves sometimes thinking, how in the world did we resort to these things? I mean, at one time we were here. How did we get already down? How did we get all the way this low, this vile? And you know what the answer to that is? Incrementally. Incrementally. Because that's what happens. When we continue to compromise and then compromise a little more, and compromise a little more, and compromise a little more. Look, most of us to some degree, whether it was your own personal experience or you know someone, you know, even just to use the analogy of someone who maybe has a severe problem with substance abuse, whether it's alcohol or severely addicted to drugs in some way. It's not like those people woke up one morning and said, you know what, I think I just want to be a fully overcome heroin addict. I think I will. That's not how it happens. Talk to any of them. No, it it was incremental. And incrementally, little by little by little by little, and then this wasn't enough, and and, and you have to just go to the next level, the next degree, and, and sin does that to people. And this is what happens in a nation. They were now beginning to fall apart from within, devouring one another. Verse 21, look what it says. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim, one tribe devouring the other, and Ephraim devouring Manasseh. And then together, they shall turn against Judah, that is their brothers down in the south. Again, here's our phrase, third time. And for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. In other words, even after all those things, it was still not enough to break their spirit, to humble them, to get them to take ownership and responsibility for their errors. They just kept persisting in their wrongdoing as a people. Verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1, woe to those, God says, who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune, which they have 
prescribed. So now he's referring to here those who are noticed legislating decrees, a reference to laws, those who are writing and legislating laws and decrees who write misfortune, which they themselves have described. So now he describes corrupt legislators and people who are legislating immoral things and destructive, ruinous things. And, 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 and how that, God says, woe to those who are doing that, who find themselves in a place where they're abusing their role as government officials. Again, the Bible is very clear, Romans 13 and other places, the primary role of government and the authority they have is for the protection and the defense of people within a nation and to encourage good among people. That is the primary role of what government civil authority exists for, to encourage good and to protect the welfare and the safety of a people nationally, both from danger from without and even evildoers from within to subdue that by bearing the sword and bearing the authority. Of course, government takes upon itself all types of other things these days, and it has grown into something where basically... Sadly, even what's described there, now you have people exercising their power in those areas where they're writing decrees and you know, putting down laws and passing legislation that is completely destructive to the fiber work of the moral you know, things of a nation. I mean, just I mean, the, the insanity that... I'm not going to go on a, on a rabbit trail, I promise here. <laughs> I'm just going to say it that way. The insanity of what people are legislating right now. And, and passing it, and God says here, woe to those who are writing those kind of decrees and prescribing those kind of things and, you know, pushing these things into law. I mean, just, I mean, just look at the stuff that's going on out there, even stuff where, you know, legislators are, are trying to literally pass laws in situations where if, if parents want to intervene and say that they don't agree with the gender confusion of their child that the schools are trying to indoctrinate their children with and to stand in opposed opposition to that, that they're trying to pass legislation that agencies should be able to go in and take the children away from the parents for the welfare of the child. And saying that the school system and the government knows better what's right for the child than the parent does. I mean, the, the insanity of what is going on and, and what's scarier is the reality of what God must be thinking as he's looking at our nation, and not just our nation, but in looking at those who particularly, you know, the legislators who are passing these things and prescribing these things that are causing great misfortune to what's moral, what is right, what is healthy and appropriate for innocent children and for parent-child relationships and letting the parent have the proper role and authority in their life to raise their own children rather than interfering. And I'm doing a rabbit trail. Verse 2. To rob the needy of justice. Again, this is part of what happens when unhealthy legislation goes on. Notice the, the, the weak and the less fortunate, they're robbed. The, the, the weak are preyed upon. They're taken advantage of. And to take what is right from the poor of my people, again, abusing those 
who don't have the same power and protections and oppressing the people, that widows may be their prey, again, devouring the widows, taking advantage of them, and that they may rob the fatherless, the orphans, those who are in situations where they don't have a protector, they were the vulnerable in society, the widows and the fatherless, the orphan. God then says, verse 3, what will you do? Here's he kind of winds down his rebuke here to them because punishment was inevitable at this point. God says to the nation, what will you do in the day of punishment and in the desolation which will come from afar? Again, it was coming. The Assyrians were bringing it. To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your glory that is the weight, the wealth, what you have that you think is going to sustain you? God says to them very strongly, so tell me, what are you going to do? In the day that punishment comes, in the day when everything is collapsing on you, in that day when finally it's the straw that breaks the camel's back, he says, tell me, what are you going to do in that day and where are you going to turn for help? You pushed me away. You told me you don't want me involved in your life, in your nation. And God says, what are you going to do when you're in the midst of the crisis? Where are you going to turn for help then? Who are you going to go to? Who's going to save you? Who's going to deliver you? He says, verse 4, without me, they shall bow down among the prisoners. That is, without God's help, they were broken. And they shall fall among the slain. So God says, where are you going to turn if you turn away from me? Without me, he says, you have nowhere to turn. You have absolutely nowhere to find help. You're going to bow down in submission, and you're going to be conquered and overcome The final time God says it, verse 4, and for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out too. In essence, you might fairly say as God comes to the close of kind of that warning to the northern kingdom and how they were going to be punished by the Assyrian Empire as his instrument, what God I sense saying by the end of this is this picture here is almost as if God is saying, you're forcing my hand. I didn't want to be severe. Again, the Bible tells us, even in the Old Testament, that the judgment of God is a strange thing to him. In other words, it's not God's preference to judge. You know, it's not God's desire to have to punish or to judge in the same way that any loving father doesn't want to punish their children, doesn't want to bring consequences, but there's a time when it is the just and appropriate and necessary thing to do in love and out of proper welfare of what's transpiring. And here God is, in a sense, saying to them again, why are you forcing my hand to make me get severe? I don't want to be severe. But see, the reality is, what does the Bible tell us? Woe to him who strives against his maker. And that God's spirit won't strive with a man or with mankind forever. And and if a person continues to persist, or a people or a nation continues to persist, ultimately God says, look, I will keep stretching out my hand as long as I have to, to do whatever it takes to be able to break your spirit. And look, when a people are stubborn, God's justice and discipline and judgment, and we got to always remember this, is way more persistent than ours. And that's the great mistake that the devil blinds us in our deception with his people is God is way more persistent 
than the greatest amount of stubbornness in our human pride and rebellion. And God will do whatever it takes, and he will continue in phase after phase after phase after phase, because what God is seeking for is brokenness and repentance, and that someone would come to their senses and heart change. And God says, listen, my hand is continually stretched out, and I'll outweight you. I'll outwork you, God says, whatever it takes. I will keep phase after phase after phase being stern and strong until ultimately I break the spirit of that one who's in trouble. And and God ultimately would do that. He would bring great punishment to the northern kingdom through the Assyrians. Now, as we come to chapter 10, verse 5, through the remainder of the chapter, God then speaks to the Assyrians his indictment against their pride and their sin. Now, God used them as his instrument, but they went way beyond what God's intention was for them, and they abused their power as a a pagan and a very ungodly people. He then says, verse 5, woe to Assyria. Again, Assyria was a cruel and barbaric nation, and they became, God says, verse 5, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. So notice God was using in his sovereignty a nation to bring about judgment against his own nation, the people Israel, and in his sovereign will, controlling all that happens. The Bible tells us that God sets up kings. He brings down kings. Proverbs says that even as you know, the, the rivers of water can be turned whatever direction, God says the heart of a king is in the hand of the Lord, and he can turn it whatever direction he wants. And God can use anything. God can even use pagan kings. God can use nations that do not even know or serve him as he did with the Assyrians as his instrument. God calls Assyria the rod. The idea is the tool, the disciplinary rod, the rod and the staff a shepherd would use to, to in a sense, guide his sheep and sometimes even to goad his sheep and to goad the flock in the direction it needed to go. And he says, Assyria has now become the rod of my anger. God would use the Assyrians in this way as his instrument to bring judgment against the people of Israel. He says, verse 6, I will send him against an ungodly nation. Now, now God's saying that about Israel. God calls them an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath, and I will give him charge to seize the spoil to take the prey and to tread them down like mire in the streets. So they were used as God's instrument of discipline, but sadly, as we know as well, the Assyrians became a very cruel and barbaric people as an empire. I I mean, they were so utterly cruel. We know historically they would do things when they would conquer people, not only where at times they would, you know, stack up the skulls outside of a a city location, basically as a way of indicating to next areas they would conquer, you know, of the barbaric cruelty they would bring as they would lead people away captives. They have, you know, pictures and depictions of putting these large fish hooks through people's nostrils or through their lip to pull them along as they would take them away captives. This was why I remember when Jonah... The prophet Jonah was told by God to go to Nineveh that Jonah was so obstinately opposed to doing that because Nineveh was the capital city of what? Assyria. And they hated the Assyrians because they were so cruel and barbaric and wicked. I mean, they were just 
horrible in the way that they would do things in their barbarism and their cruelty towards humanity, ripping open the wombs of pregnant women. And I mean, I won't gross you out, but when Jonah heard, go there and preach to those people. (laughs) Jonah heard that and thought, no way. No, I hate those people. And those people hate us. And you think we're, and, and so he struggled with that. And so again, God here used the Assyrians, but they were a very vile and cruel people. And they're still, notice, we're going to see, being held accountable for their evil and wrongdoing. Can God use anything and anyone in his sovereign purposes and plans? He can. He's God. I don't understand fully how he does it, but God can orchestrate his will and purposes through any things because he is ruler and sovereign over all. But yet, the Assyrians are still being held accountable for their own evil as they went way beyond ways that they should have behaved. And that's why verse 7, he says, Yet he does not mean so, that's the Assyrians, nor does his heart think so, but it is in his heart, notice the Assyrians, only to destroy and to cut off not a few nations. For he says, verse 8, this is the word of the Assyrian now in his pride, Are not my princes altogether kings? In other words, my up-and-coming princes, they're like kings. Now, I want you to take note of that. Think about this. If you have the king of the Assyrians saying, my princes are kings, so his princes under him are kings, then what does that make the Assyria? King of kings. Ooh, sounds like his heart's pretty proud, doesn't it? He saw himself as king of kings because he saw his princes Already like kings, he then goes on to say, verse 9, is not Kalno like Karshemesh, and Hamath like Arpad, and is not Samaria, the, the capital of Israel, like Damascus, the capital of Syria? In other words, he's basically referring to territories that he would indeed conquer during the time of around you know, 17, 17 BC, he would conquer all these territories, and he just saw every territory as the same. And so in his mindset, we conquered this group just like we conquered this group, and we conquered that group just like this group. And then he goes on to say, verse 10, as my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria, they have prettier idols in these other areas than Jerusalem and Samaria. He says, as I have done to Samaria, because he would crush the north, shall I not go and do also to Jerusalem and her idols? So in his pride and arrogance, having conquered all these other territories, and rightfully so, he now sets his sights on the southern kingdom of Jerusalem and is coming down to the capital city where he would surround Jerusalem and threaten to conquer that area because in his mindset, hey, we conquered these other territories and they had gold and silver idols and their gods were weak. So that God of Israel is weak too. We already conquered the northern kingdom, not realizing that the reason he conquered the northern kingdom was because he was God's pawn and instrument and because God made them vulnerable and weak because they had rebelled against God. It wasn't because God was weak. It was that God used him to discipline the people for what they had been doing wrong, but he now arrogantly thinks he's coming for the southern kingdom. Verse 12, Therefore it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and Jerusalem. God would let the southern kingdom suffer to an extent as well for their own rebellion because they would mimic the sins of the north. And though they saw the north fall and participate in idolatry and rebellion, rather than learn the lesson and not repeat the same mistakes, they just modeled the same behavior and they entered into the same sin. So for a time, God did let 
the Assyrians bring some hurt and difficulty and discipline against the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem as well. But notice God says here the limited extent of his control. He says, it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. In other words, God says, I have a work to accomplish, and when my work is done to the extent I want it done, then I'll shift gears the way I want to shift gears. He says, once I perform my work, I will then punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. So God says, his time, his power, his reign, God says, it ain't going to last one day longer than I shut the whole thing down. God says, once I've done what I want to do and perform my work, I'm going to punish the arrogant heart within the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. For he says, now this is the king boasting, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent. I have such wonderful ideas. Also, I have removed the boundaries of the people and have robbed their treasuries. So I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. Notice a lot of his focus is about his unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. My hand has found like a nest the riches of the people. I found the wealth that I need from among the people. And as one gathers in eggs that are left, I have gathered all the earth. In other words, I've gone and robbed all the nests and conquered all the territories, and I've done it by my great power and my great wisdom, the king is boasting. And there was none who moved his wing that has flapped a wing against me, nor opened his mouth with even a peep. In other words, I shut everybody down. No one spoke against me. What I was doing, I was doing, and no one was saying anything about it. Verse 15, God then intervenes. If no one else is going to speak up, God says, I'll tell you what's on my mind. How about that? God says, God speaks to the proud, arrogant king of Assyria. Shall the ax boast itself against him who chops with it? Or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up, or a staff could lift it up as if it were not wood. So notice God brings to his attention that he was nothing other than what? a tool. God says, you're just a tool. You're just an instrument. God refers to him as an axe that someone would use to chop down wood. He refers to him as a rod that would be utilized as a tool and an instrument of a shepherd, as the staff as well. And he says, hold on a minute. When someone with power and accuracy and thought uses an axe as a tool and an instrument to accomplish what they want done, when does the axe say, I'm a pretty sharp axe, ain't I? You see that wood I chopped? You see how I took that down? I mean, that, that's just utter foolishness, right? If that axe was not used by someone with power and knowledge and ability, that axe would just lay there and rust. It would accomplish nothing. And so the instrument here is boasting as if somehow it was glorious and special in some ways, and God is really challenging this very reality. The king of Assyria was forgetting that he was nothing other than a tool in God's hand. There was nothing unique or special about him. Again, 1 Corinthians 4 says to us as even believers being cautious of the same, what do you have that you did not receive? And God says, if you received it, then why do you boast? As if somehow it's from you or of you. So again, important that we recognize that. 
that we as well at times get the privilege, hopefully in better ways than the king of Assyria, to be instruments for the Lord. And God works through our lives as believers. We become a tool and an instrument. By the Holy Spirit's power, God works through our lives. He lets us share in the work of his kingdom. But so important that we remember that we should never boast as the instrument, that we're just a tool, and that it is all God's work in any gift we have or an ability we have or anything we accomplish, that we remember, look, anything we have, it's because we received it from the Lord. And that we should never boast in light of that. We should keep humble and recognize that we are nothing more than a humble instrument. God goes on to reprove him, saying, verse 16, Therefore the Lord, the Lord of hosts, because he was boasting in this way, will send leanness among his fat ones. So they were getting fat and sassy, and God was going to put them on a strong diet for sure here. And under his glory he will kindle a burning like a burning fire, so the light of Israel, picturing the, the great fire that burned as they traveled through the wilderness, the light, the burning light of Israel, will be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day, and it will consume the glory of his forest and his fruitful field. God was going to burn his field and burn up his fruit real quick, both soul and body, and they will be as when a sick man wastes away. The idea is powerless, someone unable to stop their condition from deteriorating. And then the rest of the trees, verse 19, of his forest will become so few in number, God was going to cut down and burn down the picture here metaphorically of all of his forest and trees so quick, he says, I'll reduce you to such a minimal amount that even a child could write it or, or record, the idea is. So God describes here how he was going to come against the king of Assyria like a consuming fire, and that he was going to come and he was going to devour. And again, what invoked this? The pride in his heart. It was the arrogancy that God was going to strongly come against, and like a burning fire, he was going to come and he was going to deal strongly. Of course, ultimately, we know how God will do that through his one act of that angel of the Lord uh, taking out 185,000 Syrian troops in one night, in one day, when they were surrounding Jerusalem. It is interesting to take notice there that verse 17 says, his thorns and his briars will be devoured in, notice God says, one day. 2 Kings chapter 19 describes how in one day, in one night, they were surrounding the city. It looked like it was impending doom, and in one day, God turned everything around. One angel went out and killed 185,000 troops, and the backbone of Assyria was broken, and they packed up and went back home, and that was pretty much the end of the strength of the Assyrian Empire, and the Babylonians were next raised up. Verse 20, and it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel, and they would be reduced to a remnant, such as have escaped the house of Jacob, will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Now, take notice of that. I have that start, and I think it's very critical, verse 20. God says when he breaks the backbone of the Assyrian Empire and the king of Assyria, who remember, what did Israel do? They hired out the king of Assyria when when they, they felt, or excuse me, the southern kingdom, Ahaz, hired out the, the king of Assyria when they felt that the Syrians in the northern kingdom was going to come against them and conquer them there in Judah. And so Ahaz, when he saw the very person he was depending upon, now destroyed and defeated when God told him, don't trust 
the Assyrians to come help you. I'm going to deliver you. Don't go to the Assyrians. They're going to come conquer you anyway. But he was leaning on the arm of flesh and relying upon and depending upon the one who ultimately became defeated. God says, as I orchestrate these things, I have a primary lesson, God says here. Look at verse 20. He was trying to convey to the southern kingdom of Judah, particularly King Ahaz, who was depending upon Assyria, that they would never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord. That's such an important lesson, folks. Sometimes God will allow very powerful events to happen to teach us not to depend upon the arm of flesh, not to depend upon people, but to learn to depend upon the Lord, to rely on the Lord. That is such a critical life lesson for us as God's people. He does not want us depending upon this to save us or that person to deliver us or this resource to get us out of a situation, but to learn to depend upon the Lord. Such a critical thing for our lives spiritually. Verse 21, and then the remnant shall return. There's that name of Isaiah's one shun. Remember, uh, Shear Jashup, the remnant will return. The remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. God always preserves a remnant because he never forsakes his plan. And the Messiah would come through the line of Judah. Even though they would suffer great harm, God would preserve a remnant so that Judah could still bring forth the Messiah, ultimately the destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness for the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. I love the, the phrase there, God will make a determined end. There's something about determination, the strength in someone's character and, and what God was going to do bringing an end to the Assyrian empire who was causing problems to them. God says, I'm determined to do that. I am determined to bring an end to this. I'm determined to bring an end to that which was wrong, God says. I'm, I'm glad that sometimes God's determined, especially when it's, he's determined to bring an end to something that is not God's will. Verse 24, therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people, now he brings some encouragement as he concludes the chapter. O my people who dwell in Zion, there in Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of Judah, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. He shall strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt for yet a very little while, and the indignation will cease, as will my anger in the destruction. And the Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. That was when Gideon conquered the people and slayed the kings there, as also the rod was on the sea. So will he lift up in the manner of Egypt when God miraculously parted the Red Sea and delivered them from their enemies in great power. And what God is doing here in these verses is he's encouraging the people saying, listen, yes, the king of Assyria for a time, he, he, he will bring some suffering into your life. God says there will be some suffering. You will be to some degree hurting because of what's done to you. But God says, but don't you give in to fear. Because God says, I assure you, I am going to bring an end to the wrong things that he's doing. And so God says, don't be afraid. I know you're suffering. But he says, trust me, don't fear that Assyrian. Because he says, even as I powerfully conquered the enemies in the people of God's life before, God says, I'm going to do it again. 
I'm the same God, the same God who parted the Red Sea, the same God who's fought your battles before. God says, don't be afraid. Trust me, let me work. And again, you can read the account, Isaiah 37, 2 Kings chapter 19, three different times, that account of God's mighty deliverance when the angel of the Lord goes out and destroys 185,000 troops in one night. Three times God puts it in the scriptures to show his great power that in one day, God can turn everything around. He has the power to do that. It shall come to pass, verse 27, let's finish it up. In that day that he is a burden, that he will take his burden away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil, a picture of the Spirit of God's work. It's the power of the Spirit that breaks the yoke, takes away the bondage. He has come to Aioth, he's passed Migron and Michmash, and he's attended to his equipment. And they've gone along the ridge and taken up the lodging at Geba. And Ramah is afraid, and Gibeah of Saul has fled. Now what he's describing here is cities. As the king of Assyria came down, and these were different territories. They don't mean much to us, but in an ancient map, these were different territories. One after another, he was toppling and conquering. Lift up your voice, verse 30, O daughter of Galim. Cause it to be heard as far as Laish, O poor of Anoth. Madanoth has fled, the inhabitants of Gabim seek refuge, as yet he will remain, notice that word, he will remain at Nob that day. He will strike his fist at Mount Zion of the daughter of Jerusalem, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will lop off the bow with terror, and those of high stature will be hewn down, and the haughty will be Humbled. God always promises to humble the haughty, the arrogant. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon will fall by their mighty ones. So what the prophet is conveying to the people as God's message is, listen, I know you see the king of Assyria, and he's conquering this territory, and this territory, and this territory, and it looks like, man, he is full steam, and nobody's stopping him, and God says he will keep coming and coming, and he's describing successive locations, getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, but notice the closest location before he hits Jerusalem, verse 32, yet he will remain, the idea is he will stop or be restrained at Nob that day. In other words, God's saying he'll only go so far because my restraining hand can always stop what any human being is doing. And so God says here, look, you be encouraged I am one day going to bring down this haughty individual and to humble them. And you know what? I think that's a, a healthy encouragement for us because sometimes situations look like or circumstances seem to indicate you know, that it just seems like, Lord, where are you at? Why are you letting this happen? Why would, and, and, and the wonderful thing to realize is his ways are higher than our ways and God measures time morally, which is where we get confused sometimes. And God's merciful, and he's patient, and often he's waiting. But I tell you this, God is also persistent. And no one wins resisting God. Eventually, God will do what God needs to do. And our responsibility is to trust the Lord and to let the Lord work in his way and in his time. Let's stand together.